Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. This is really a, a fascinating exercise, isn't it? Mm-hmm. So just to go through it again. So the, the first phase of the exercise is to tell your partner to describe some place where there's conflict or where there's tension. And the language we use usually has a lot of projection in it. Where it doesn't begin from the place of what I'm going to do about it. It begins from the places what they have to do about it, or how something on the outside needs to change. And um, and that's good. It's good sometimes just to even articulate that. But now the second phase of the exercise is, what are you going to let go of? What are you going to let go of? And then I think we... Um, possibility that a dukkha is self-generated starts to percolate through one's perception of the situation. And then, to add to that the practicality that I address, which is, you know, I want you to describe what you can let go of in the situation this week this week. You see, and again, this is why we were talking about the relationship between samadhi and the yamas. Because it's not enough just to neutralize one's own self-concern. We have to, um, and that's possible through sitting practice, through lots of canoe trips. You can neutralize your self-image. It's possible. But this practice is going a step further, which is once you've started to see that it's possible to neutralize self-concern, self-cherishing, is to transform that into genuine care for others. And that comes back to really understanding, and I mean understanding, etymologically, you know, to to get under the ground you're standing on. To get into the roots, nirodaha. To get into the... Nirodaha means... Roda means radical. To get to the bottom of something. 
And when you get to the bottom of self, you find others. So to get to the bottom of dukkha, we, we touch everything. In other words, when you don't fill up the lack, and you just let that feeling of emptiness occur, then emptiness is boundlessness. It's everything. The word in Sanskrit is shunyata. And the word shunyata, uh, shu means to swell. So shunyata really means to swell, to swell up. That everything is pregnant. It has no end. So what was it like? What was it like to switch? And you don't have to give me all the details, but... Well, you can, but I charge more money. (laughs) (laughs) But... But what I'm interested in is, what did you notice in the shift from the first way you described the situation to the second? What did you notice in that in that shift? Responsibility. Responsibility. And then the stuff that I was projecting. Yeah. Right. Somebody else. Joanne, I think you had to. Oh, I was going to say, it seemed the second time seemed like a more accurate way Mm. of describing the situation Mm -hmm. when when it became more what can I do, what can I feel, it seemed more honest. Well, for me, actually, it was when I sat back down on my cushion. I thought, you know, it's all about my need for control in that situation. I do right. like all that need for control. Yeah. yeah. And then, yeah. then things will happen like that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, what I noticed is I, I sort of jumped ahead and already kind of analyzed what I needed to let go of uh-huh. within the first section. Uh-huh. But it was it was much more of that kind of lofty aim that right. it's not really attainable right away. And so yeah. the second time it was so much more practical and so much more focused on on just being able to, you know, mm-hmm. solve the problem with just mm-hmm. really small practical steps rather yes. than like you said, you know, really for self image, you know, yeah. and that's good. Yeah. In terms of agency and empowerment and solution. Uh-huh. Yeah, because sometimes when our goals are lofty, they just never get done. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> they don't. <laughs> yeah. I, I think um, what was a little bit similar in this was this uh, article, this issue that Sometimes you don't own the problem. Mm-hmm. If you don't own the problem, mm-hmm. nothing you can do can solve it. Mm-hmm. Then mm-hmm. you really have to let go because mm-hmm. otherwise you have it the rest of your whole yeah. time that you're ever going to be in this world. Mm-hmm. But it, 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 you always feel you do have that problem. Mm-hmm. 
Yes. And it's yes. very difficult to give it up. Uh-huh. To really let it go. Yes. Especially when it's, you know, something within your family. Yeah. Like, yes. interesting enough, mother-daughter issue. Well, maybe this is a good time to introduce the third mm-hmm. phase of this exercise. <laughs> so, in six days from now, mm-hmm. you're going to check in with your partner mm-hmm. and uh, see how it went. Um, By telephone. No hiding in emails. (laughs) So make sure by the end of the day, today, you guys have exchanged telephone numbers. So what day is six days from now? So on Monday, make a time Make sure it works with time zones and everything. (laughs) I always had this idea, I still have the idea, but it's not going to happen for a while, of doing like a two-month intensive. And one of the practices we would do during the intensive (coughs) was you would have a friend, uh, like a buddy, and um, every uh, week, one time, you would meet with your buddy and you would tell them where uh, you've really crossed the line on one of the yamas. Mm-hmm. 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 In a way, kind of like confession. <laughs> you know? But as a friend, you know, and to have a friend who every week for like a whole summer, for example, mm-hmm. you just check in and just say like, okay, here's where I was really not honest. And your friend wouldn't talk to you about it. They wouldn't say it's okay or it's not okay. They would just listen. No punishment. Yeah. And we did that with the Hoffman process. Mm-hmm. And it mm-hmm. is entirely ineffective. Ineffective. It's effective. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, I practiced that one for two years. Yeah. Just because we became friends. Yeah. And, uh, it is an exercise in listening. Yes. So the agreement is to listen and not solve the problem. Yes. You can ask a question, but you can't solve the problem. Yes. In nonviolent communication, we call them self-empathy. Well, mm-hmm. no, self-empathy, I guess, when you get here, but empathy sessions, if you do it mm-hmm. with someone else. Mm-hmm. Where it's, it's sort of similar premise, the piece of sharing and non-judgmental empathic presence there mm-hmm. to listen. Mm-hmm. It's amazing how powerful it is to have somebody to hear, yes. to actually hear, yeah. even if they don't interact or say anything. Yeah. yeah. Sometimes one of the things that happens when we don't come from a place of accepting a situation is we understand it only intellectually through the citta vrittis, right? through names and forms that are already like in your mental toolbox. And then instead of actually listening to something, you're just taking what you're noticing and just putting it in the boxes that you have. And we all have like five or six favorite baskets, you know, that we put all of our 
five or six layered filters or pairs of glasses or something. Last intensive, I read a little poem, and earlier today I was going through some of my notes from, from the last intensive, and, and I came across this poem, and I forgot how much I liked it. So I just wanted to read it, because it's exactly what we're talking about. Um, it's by one of my favorite poets, W.S. Merwin. And um, when I was in Paris, I found this bookstore, and they had all of his books, like first edition. And um, I know I know him as a translator, but I, I've never read any of his poems before. And he's really a fabulous poet, if any of you ever get a chance to read his poems. You were the only one who was here last time. Maybe we'll have you read your poem, too. <laughs> we, we worked on writing poetry last uh, intensive. My friend... Oh, the title of the poem is called Yesterday. My friend says, I was not a good son, you understand. I say, yes, I understand. He says, I did not go to see my parents very often, you know. And I say, yes, I know. Even when I was living in the same city, he says, maybe I would go there once a month or maybe even less. I say, oh, yes. He says, the last time I went to see my father... I say, the last time I saw my father, he says, the last time I saw my father, he was asking me about my life, how I was making out, and he went into the next room to get something to give me. Oh, I say, feeling again the cold of my father's hand the last time. He says, and my father turned in the doorway and saw me look at my wristwatch, and he said, you know, I would like you to stay and talk with me. Oh, yes, I say. But if you're busy, he said, I don't want you to feel that you have to just because I'm here. I say nothing. He says, my father said, maybe you have important work you're doing, or maybe you should be seeing someone. I don't want to keep you. I look out the window. My friend is older than I am, he says, and I told my father it was so, and I got up and I left him then, you know though there was nowhere I had to go and nothing I had to do. The the last two lines. Though there was nowhere I had to go, nothing I had to do. So I think we've all had this experience in different ways. The theme in this poem, well, there are many themes in this poem. One of the themes in this poem is not seeing karma. We all have addictions and habits, Mm -hmm. and we're all caught in our own self-enclosed loops. But the difference between actually doing something about it and not doing something about it is huge because our habits are comfortable because it creates a world around us that's known 
And a lot of the times we convince ourselves that a lot of our addictions don't affect other people. Okay, we say they affect me, maybe they keep me in this bad habit, whatever yours is, you can fill it in. But we don't realize that that takes a tremendous amount of energy that the Don River needs, that other people need your attention. And you can't be of service if you're spending your own time being caught up in your own habits of self-judgment, of envy, of jealousy, of greed, hatred, delusion, anger, pride, whatever it is. And so this is a really important point. And you can really feel the tenderness in this poem in the Father. Mm-hmm. But he didn't stay. He didn't stay. Any thoughts or observations? This, um, this topic of being available is um, mm-hmm. something that, um, that was introduced to me about a year ago. And mm-hmm. um, at the time, the teacher was saying that, you know, you need to make yourself available because people need you. And I think so often we forget that, mm-hmm. that, that we have, just by being ourselves, we're such a, a resource to everybody around us. And mm-hmm. um, I think that poem really highlights that. Mm-hmm. that you know, make yourself available yeah. instead of getting caught up in, in things and habits mm-hmm. that you have. Yeah. Especially living in an urban environment, you know. One of the places it's sometimes hard for us to be generous with is with time. Mm-hmm. You know. Because our lives are so scheduled. I think that poem really emphasizes to me anyway a great loss on both sides. Mm-hmm. The father and the son mm-hmm. are both losing so much. Yeah. Now when that father dies, maybe then mm-hmm. the son mm-hmm. will realize that he sure. wasted sure. so much time. Yeah. yeah. And maybe not. Maybe and maybe it, you know I mean, that's the thing about our delusions, too, is that we're deluded. I mean, Carl Jung has this lovely line where he says, what's unconscious is unconscious. Mm -hmm. I love Mm this. In other words, if something is unconscious, it's unconscious. It's outside of your awareness. And then the next thing he says is, and the only way that you can recognize that there is something that's unconscious, the only way is through projection. If something is really outside of your awareness, then you project it outside of your own self. And then, actually, it keeps going, it gets better. And then he says, and if, and if you don't have the skills to accompany you in recognizing what's unconscious, it's like falling into a hole backwards. <laughs> have you ever fallen into a hole backwards? 
I haven't, but I could imagine. <laughs> so, we're back again to bewilderment. We're back again to doubt. We were talking yesterday a little bit about Bernie Glassman, and um, I just saw a really wonderful film that somebody made about him. And um, there's this point in the film where they say to him, he, he does this, this practice where instead of doing a sashin in the zendo, they go to Auschwitz and they sit for eight days in one of the camps. You know, like for a day on the railroad tracks, a day inside one of the buildings, a day in one of the buildings where maybe they were, you know, burning people and so on. It's what they do for eight days. And someone says, you know, wh- why did did you organize this? You know, why did you organize this? And of course, he can come up with all kinds of great philosophies. Well, interdependence, so we cannot repeat it again. You know, you can imagine it would be very easy to do that. And he said, I have no idea how something like that happened. How could something like that have happened? So. The not knowing became so intense that I realized I had to go there to learn. I had to go there to learn. So I think Michelle was talking this morning about how not knowing is not the opposite of knowing. Did she read the, the poem? Yeah. Not knowing is not the opposite of knowing. It's a posture, an existential posture, out of which you can start to see something clearly without turning back into the privacy of your own knowledge. So whatever conflict you were talking about today with your partner or partners, um, Now can you approach that from the place of not knowing? So maybe you can learn something. I would say to this son who walked out the door, and I've been this son who's walked out the door, actually many, 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 many times. Can you say... I don't understand. Like, this conflict maybe has been going on for a few years. Maybe it's not new, the conflict you're talking about. And maybe you don't understand exactly all the dynamics that are going into it. And actually, maybe whether or not you understand it or not is not even useful. And instead, from a place of not really being sure, let a little bit of doubt in about what you know and then you're ready to learn something. You're ready then to learn something. We've all memorized now Shinru Suzuki's great line that how does it go? (laughs) (laughs) Which one? (laughs) Yes, I know. 
in the beginner's mind there are many possibility and in the expert's mind there are few Glassman says is really beautiful, you know, like, I don't know how that could have happened. This is the not knowing part of I don't know. Mm-hmm. So I had to go there and learn. I don't really know anything about Afghanistan. I don't know anything about Afghanistan. So I can't be so quick can't be so quick to project enemy status because I don't know and isn't this what Arjuna is going through on the battlefield I don't really know what the point of this is going to be because I know all those people and I turn around to my own camp and I know all of them too Or the Buddha with his charioteer, seeing a sick person, an old person, an aging person, and a corpse, and asking this profound question that only death can provoke, which is, um, is this going to happen to me? And what does this mean? What does this mean? Great doubt great awakening. I remember one day when I was after a few months of practicing psychotherapy, they say that your first clients are the ones you get you really need. I don't know about that, but it, you know, Maybe. Anyways, the first person I I started seeing, he was just one of the most boring people, really, ever. (laughs) I actually even never met somebody who, like, just dull. (laughs) And um, I remember having this realization that I'm never going to last in this work. Um, unless I find a way to not finish every day tired. Mm-hmm. I went for a haircut last week, which is a rare thing. And um, the woman who was cutting my hair said, you know, there's people who take your energy and people who give you energy. And in the day when I just open up my day planner and I see who's coming, 
And I say to myself, oh no, there's a lot of takers. (laughs) (laughs) And that's the end of my day. (laughs) And I felt like saying, oh, well, oh. What did she say when she saw my name? <laughs> <laughs> um, and what I came to realize is, like, there's only one way to, to finish the day with energy, which is to actually be there. How tiring it is to fight with time. And in a way, if you get really clear about what dukkha is, I mean, really try and penetrate in your practice how dukkha operates, you will start to notice that dukkha is actually just the gap between your mind and time. It's being out of sync where you've created discord with um, time. It's very interesting that, you know, two of our best philosophers um, on the subject of being, Dogen on the one hand and Heidegger on the other, both named their work Being and Time. Dogen is time and being, Heidegger is being and time. You know, the verbs that we that dominate the English language are either to be or to have. And um, the difference between them is time. When you are who you are, When the tree is a tree, there's no time. There's rhythm, there's seasons. But there isn't this subject-object relationship with time that creates in us states of mind dominated by raga and dvesha. Enter here. Enter here. How can you leave today not tired? What are you doing here that creates tiredness? Yeah, oh, it's, it's Ben's cooking. <laughs> I'm not used to eating like this. I eat a, usually a little salad. It's my digestion. <laughs> Windows are not open enough. It's the incense. It's the incense. What's with the incense? <laughs> it's hard to sit all day. And then when you're in the asana practice, like, oh God, when are we going to sit? <laughs> <laughs> When I teach, you know, when I teach workshops, it's great to watch because the same people who are fidgeting during the lecture because they just want to start, you know, doing vinyasa are the same people who in the vinyasa practice just can't pay attention. Same person. (laughs) 
You tell me. I hadn't figured it out. Yeah. Well. I was exhausted. Yeah. Raga and dvesha. Attachment and aversion. Patanjali says, attachment is the desire to maintain and repeat pleasurable experience. Aversion is the desire to lean away from what is not pleasurable. Which is actually the same thing, right? Aversion. Yeah. So, I mean, attachment is attachment to pleasure. <laughs> attachment is like, I don't want to know anything about anything that's going to get into my sphere, my idiom. This is my space. So how are you going to leave without being tired? Don't roll up your yoga mat. Okay. I am going to give you some homework, some of you, tonight. Um, does everybody have a copy of the Yoga Sutra? If you don't, I can tell you after how you can look at it online or borrow one tonight. Um, chapter 2, line 46. I want you to give a five-minute, no, four-minute talk on one line. So, Melinda, line 46, Susan, line 47, Net, line 48, Joanna, line 49, Linda line where fifty. David fifty one. Natalia fifty two. Ashley fifty three. Fifty four fifty five. You guys have some homework for the next day. Oh yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> But I just want to mention a couple things about this because uh, I just want to give you a, a just like a thirty-second history about these lines. Um, this is these lines are one example where scholars, and what I mean are people who read words who don't actually practice those kind of scholars who actually dominate the translation tradition of many of these texts. Um, consider the Yoga Sutra a text on uh, dualistic philosophy, where there's um, a split between uh, what's changing, what's not changing. Often it's like spirit and matter, these kind of ideas. 
And what I want you to tease out of these lines from your personal experience is what is non-dualistic about what Patanjali is pointing at. The yoga, the union, the reconciliation of opposites. And one wonderful scholar named Barbara Stoller Miller, uh, one idea she has about the Yoga Sutra is that it's actually written in paragraphs. And so this collection of lines here is a paragraph. So make sure you're reading your line in the context of that paragraph, which starts at line 46. So, sorry, I'm not sure. Uh My cognitive processes are offline. You would like us to take a line that's assigned to us and speak about what is non-dualistic in that line. Yeah. As you experience it, for four minutes. Oh, as we experience. As you experience. Oh, yeah. I don't want to just hear like words. As you experience it, and we might debate with you. Nobody shows up. I forgot what the schedule is, but I think tomorrow uh, we'll do this in the afternoon. What's the uh, what? How can we uh, access it? Oh, uh, online. You can access it at uh, www.arlingtoncenter.net, is it? Actually, you know what? You can just take this. It's easier. Dot org. Is it dot org? Yeah. Oh, actually, that the Yoga Sutra, that was what you suggested that we download for this. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, do you have to? So I did download. Okay. Right. So there you go. Okay, good. Or you can have this. But there's too. like tons of Sanskrit in it. It's in English. It's a Sanskrit-English translation. There seems to be a lot of English. Oh, look at Use that. Did the right one. If you like. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's still at line 46. Yeah. You just don't have the commentary. Right. Mm-hmm. You don't need the commentary for the homework. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't it be somewhat beneficial? I mean, it, there's pros and cons to both, but that scholars do translate the text because they have a completely well, not completely, but somewhat objective opinion. They have no concept of really the practice, and so they're not perhaps a little tainted by the practice. I mean, both would be valuable. Sure, if you're reading a text of philosophy. A plain interpretation would be useful. Sure, if you're reading a text of philosophy. But the Mm -hmm. Yoga Sutra is not philosophy. Mm -hmm. And it's a guideline for how to actually practice And so I think when you get to especially chapter four, Mm -hmm. if you don't practice, it doesn't really make any sense. Sure. And uh, I won't put this lecture up on the internet, but um, when you read people like Georg Feuerstein or some of these translations where, you know, you can get a sense, especially in those parts of those chapters that are about deep meditation practice, that there isn't the personal experience of it. 
And um, one of the nice things about Chip's translation is that it's coming from a practice-oriented perspective. Mm-hmm. Now, there's also a place for really good scholarship, and the scholarship is helpful in terms of the context that it was written in, the cultural context, who Patanjali may have been, how you know what sources he or she came in contact with, mm-hmm. what might have been happening in the community, uh, why some words were used and how they're used in the context etymologically, and mm-hmm. you know because he uses many Sanskrit words that we're familiar with, but in different ways than they're often used, like the word purusha, for example, or karma. So um, the scholar is really important in terms of clarifying some of those issues. Mm. But in terms of um, uh, creating sentences and commentary, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, it's interesting. We're running out of time today, but actually some of the best commentaries of the Yoga Sutra come from uh, medieval times, and they were actually done by Buddhists, which is kind of interesting. Who maybe didn't have as much of an investment mm-hmm. in the text as some Brahmins might have. Mm-hmm. Okay. Why don't we finish with a little chant? And then we'll call it a day, if that's possible. Life and death are of supreme importance. Life and death are of supreme importance. Time passes swiftly and opportunity is lost. Time passes swiftly and opportunity is lost. Let us awaken. Let us awaken. 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 Be safe and free from danger. May all beings be safe and free from danger. May all beings be free from every form of discontent. May all beings be free from every form of discontent. May all beings be free from every form of lack. May all beings be free from every form of lack. May all beings be free from every form of unsatisfaction. May all beings be free from every form of satisfaction. Especially us. (laughs) Namaste. Namaste.